0: Welcome, I am Carol Sanford, your host for the Responsible Capitalist podcast. The podcast is about finding a way to align your values with how you invest your money. Well, I'd like to welcome Marjorie Kelly. And I always like to start with asking the authors or entrepreneurs or capitalists that I'm speaking with, the responsible capitalists, the ones who are changing our foundation, to tell us how they got to where we are in this conversation today. Just give us a little bit of thread of the highlights that got you here. Yeah, Carol,
1: that's a fun question to start with. Well, you know, I I come from a business family. My dad and my grandfather had their own own companies. And I I started my own company, Business Ethics Magazine, in in 1987. Mm -hmm. And I was all about celebrating responsible business. I thought good business people, that was how we're gonna change capitalism for the better. And I, over 20 years of publishing that magazine, it was about socially responsible business, socially responsible investing. I became discouraged because I saw a lot of responsible businesses sold to multinationals, go public, you know, shares trading on public markets. And I saw them lose their social. And I, it took me many years to see, but I saw that ownership was really the controlling force, not, not CEOs, not management, but really ownership. And that's not something that um, many people realize, and so I wrote my first book, Divine Right of Capital, came out in 2001 to talk about that, and to really, we have these kind of deep pictures in our head, um, you know, that we think it's just fine that capital owns everything, and I, I likened it to the monarchy and the aristocracy back in the days when, you know, they controlled everything, and people thought that was normal, and it had been for millennia, and I said, it's very much like, now. we think it's normal that 1% owns everything, so um, that was my first book. And I, um, I wrote a second book about how would you design corporations and ownership differently. And that, that got me an invitation to the, the Democracy Collaborative where I work now. There's 40 of us working around the country trying to build what we call a, a democratic economy. And so this third book, The Making of a Democratic Economy, is really our best thinking. It's wonderful, Carol. And I'm, not a, I'm not a lone wolf anymore. I'm part of a team. We're all pointing in the same direction and working with actually you know, hundreds of people around the country. There's brilliant thinking going on, has been going on for a couple of decades. How would you design the economic system for good outcomes for people and, and plan it? Not just try to wrap regulations around it, but design it from the inside out in its DNA. So that's, that's work we do in consulting and in theory. And um, so I wrote a book about it. And and the book is really, um, it's by Ted Howard and I. Ted's the president, and I'm the executive vice president at Democracy Collaborative. And we're looking at real people who are doing real things and saying, okay, what's going on here? What can can we learn? So
0: I think it's a fun book to read. I'm
1: told that it is.
0: Yes, it is. I will assert that it is fun to read. I rarely read all the way through a book nowadays. And I argue with every book I read, but I kept reading this one because it kept pulling me forward with new ideas. Um, so let's describe to people what this book is so they know what, what I'm responding to.
1: What's yeah, the well, the making of a democratic economy is really a look at what is the alternative to corporate capitalism and state socialism. And we have this funny idea, Carol, that our choices are binary. It's either corporate capitalism or state socialism, and that that's it, that's the end of our choices. And what we're saying is that No, there really is something um, more appropriate to the 21st century that's being born right now. Employee-owned companies, B corporations that have public benefit baked in, publicly-owned banks. You know, there's lots of these examples of, you know, impact investing. All of these things and more add up to a new paradigm. It's really a new way to organize an economy, and it's far advanced, much farther along than people realize. So we journey journey around and we look at, Well, what's going on? Who's making this democratic economy? What does it look like? And what are its core principles? I mean, it's about inclusion. It's about community. It's about sustainability. So how do you build an economy around those kinds of values rather than what we have now, which is an extractive economy? It's built around maximum extraction of financial wealth for the few.
0: So I'm sure you've seen and have a a comment on California is the first state now to create its own private or publicly held banking system. I live in the state of Washington. We've been working on that for a couple of years, and I think are within a couple of months of doing that. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming that's very encouraging to you, along with other things. I'm wondering just while we're talking about that shift in ownership, including ownership of capital, how those, and particularly the California one, since many people have read, feels like it supports what you're trying to do here, or is it different? You know, how does No, it- it's perfect. It's part of it. Publicly owned banks, banks, a bank that's owned by the
1: state, the people of the state. Now, that's a perfect example of the kind of institution that you want in a democratic economy. It's designed for the public good. It's not designed for maximum profit extraction. It's designed to serve the public. Yeah, and as you said, Carol, California has recently just taken a huge step toward creating a state-owned bank. In California, the, the new governor there, uh, Gavin Newsom, campaigned on this and is making huge strides. There is one existing already in uh, Bank of North Dakota it has been around for a hundred years. And I think that's what's inspired a lot of people. It did so well in the 2008 downturn and protected that state. And uh, it's inspired a whole movement around the country. But you're, but you're right. The, that is
0: exactly the kind of institution that we're talking about. Okay. Why did you need to write a book? You're describing a whole lot of great things that are going on, kind of has its natural momentum and, you know, more and more people involved. Why this book? Why now? Yeah. Well, I I think...
1: A book is a way of showing this is a coherent paradigm because I think people are aware, oh, there are public banks. Oh, there's employee ownership. You know. Mm-hmm. Oh, there are big corporations. But we don't think of it as actually representing an alternative to our economic system. And that's, what, that's a key thing that we're trying to say is there is a coherent alternative here. One of the things we say in the book, Carol, is that um, a lot of people can more easily envision the end of the world then they can envision the end of capitalism. Mm-hmm. So we're at, and so then people think, oh well, then it's gotta be socialism. And we think that means government control of everything, and that's you know, people will shoot you down in flames if you try to talk about that. So we're we're kind of paralyzed. And and I think there's a lot of despair and hopelessness that sets in with people, that the problem is too big, people people feel like they can't do anything. And so so that's the second reason that we're doing it. We're saying there is an actual alternative, it's it's really been developed. And also, ordinary people are advancing this. And so we go around and we look at some of these regular people working in city economic development or some 30-something young men working who are a Native American and and created their own community development corporation or or impact investors. There are lots of ways we can participate in this. So we want to kind of break through that kind of paralysis and lack of imagination and say, what we need is here.
0: Great. So I told you before we started that there are three arenas which people have been saying, talk to Marjorie about this, talk to Marjorie, and I'd, I'd love to hear, I'm going to give you a specific question, but I'd love to hear a bit about specifically where capitalism is now, what its role, if any, how would it, how would we get from here to there? Mm-hmm. Secondly, more about what do the ownership models look like? And in each of these cases, you've got great stories in the book, so I'm not worried at all about asking you these questions. And finally, the climate crisis, but uh, particularly what does the New Green Deal mean? You know, we hear that on the late night or late news and still don't know what it means. And a, a little story around each one. So let's start, if we can, since this is kind of where you started also. What do you see as the evolution, the revolution, or the transition of sort from capitalism to what you're talking about in this book or is there one or do we have to have a revolution no i think there's
1: definitely an evolution i think we're going to see the democratic economy growing up alongside uh, the capitalist economy and uh, hopefully it will eventually become the new norm but it's not no I, I don't think it's about tearing things down i think it's about building up um, building up realistic and feasible alternatives. So you you started by saying, Carol, what's the role of capitalism? And I think that um, I think if if we really understand properly what's happening today, even with Trump and Brexit, you know, and all these crises and climate change, what's really happening is that our way of organizing our economy is coming to an end. That is the root crisis. I mean, we can't keep burning fossil fuels. I mean, we put a, a supposed billionaire in the White House, and the reason that Republicans keep him there is because he's giving huge tax cuts and deregulation. So he's he's enacting this agenda that people think serves, um, you know, the wealthy few. And so we're we're clinging. It's like we're clinging by our fingernails, you know, to what's dying and what's ending. We simply cannot continue with the economy that we have. It's going to, it's either, it's going to break down. Um, and, and so what's the alternative? You know, it's not as though life just winks out. <laughs> Some people think, oh, climate change there's disaster is disastrous coming. Well, yes, you know, climate change is to a certain extent baked in now. We know we're going to have a 1.5 degree world and we're easily heading toward, toward two degrees. It's going to be a very different world. Um, I, you know, at the foot of my driveway, I can see the ocean. I live in Salem, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. and um, we we're very aware of that. Uh, but so yes, things are changing dramatically. And what is the alternative? How can we begin to organize human economic activity in a way that actually has beneficial outcomes? We need to know this as we move forward. Now, how are we going to implement this? It, it's not. I don't think it's going to be as simple as a group of us sit down in a, in a room and come up with a big blueprint and then we all go out and implement it. I think it's more, there's gonna, it's going to be fits and starts, there are going to be openings that we can't imagine. You know, you know it's, gonna, it's going to take, um, how, how do you deal with climate change? That takes a lot of kinds of interventions by a lot of people over time, right? It's not a single thing. So I think we need to let go of the blueprint idea, but, but starting with a clear vision Yes, you can actually organize sophisticated, modern economic activity so that it tends to have positive outcomes. Um, Having that vision and then having some strategies to get from from here to there. There's some great policy ideas on the agenda now. I'll just just mention um, one, and that is Elizabeth Warren is putting forward the Accountable Capitalism Act. And what that says is if a corporation has more than $1 billion in revenue, which means it's pretty big, Uh, It it is no longer chartered at the state level, where all corporations are chartered today. It will have a new federal charter, and as part of that charter, there will be new fiduciary duties for the directors of that company. They're no longer in the business of maximizing financial returns to investors. They have new duties to include uh, the public, communities, the environment, and, and employees. And there's going to be, and in, in this there will be 40% of board seats for employees. So you're, this is, this is transformative. So you're saying into the DNA of companies, they have a new purpose, they have new kinds of directors, they have uh, new uh, federal oversight. That's an example of a transformative solution, and I think that it's even on the table now by a mainstream candidate. is is big, big news, Carol. I mean, it's an example of how. The overturned window, they, sh- you know, they say that the window that defines what can you actually talk about has shifted. We're starting to look at the actual design of companies.
0: I love that big picture of where we can go. I know in your book, you have many stories which are like, here is the seed for it. Here is where we see this coming. Is there one that gives us a taste for this is not pie in the sky or so overwhelming that we could say, ah, I can taste it from that story? Sure, sure. Um, Yeah. Well, let me just talk a little bit
1: about Cooperative Home Care Associates, and this is one of the companies we visit in the book. It's been around for thirty-three years. It's one hundred percent owned by its workers. It's been profitable for thirty out of thirty-three years, and it is. um, It's a home care company, so that means most of its workers are uh, uh, women of color, and uh, many were formerly unemployed or. on welfare, and they get trained by this company to go into homes and care for the low-income who are, who are disabled or elderly and help them with their health care needs. And it has 2,300 workers. It's a profit-making company, but it's not profit-maximizing. It mm-hmm. is designed to be a worker-centered company, which most of us don't even dream of that. We always think about putting regulations on companies to force them to care about workers. well this is a company that was created with the aim of creating uh, good jobs for workers and it's still it still considers that it's its guiding aim and it and it, it's its uh, philosophy is that by doing so it's going to create good care. it's going to create quality care by creating quality jobs and it's uh, it has proven that case and there's now a movement to create more of these kinds of worker-owned home health care companies there are now 15 in existence or in creation, and there's an annual conference of people trying to scale up this model. Um, So that's an example of how you start with something that's inspiring, you start to spread that model. To take it even bigger, employee ownership overall is poised to become quite big in the next 10 years. Baby boomers are retiring, there's gonna be 2.3 million businesses on the market uh, in in the next 10 years, baby boom entrepreneurs. If we captured more of those for employee ownership, we could create uh, 13 million new employee owners in the next decade, and that's double what we have today. And the tax incentives already are in place uh, that make this very, very handsome. And it's a way for exiting owners to realize the value they've created. So here's an example. We're not taking anything away from anyone. We're not tearing anything down. This is a natural process that's occurring. People are aging. They need to sell their businesses or close them. Let's transition as many as we can to employee ownership and start to create broad-based wealth. These companies, have, they have one, they're one-fourth as likely to lay off people. People who work at worker-owned companies have double the retirement savings. You're starting to talk about a kind of world where people have, have security, and we could do that uh, given the, the tools that we have actually right now.
0: So you're talking about what we often acronymically talk about as ESOPs, right, a lot, where mm-hmm. the employees actually own them um are there other models of changing ownership well there's a
1: couple of models there's worker-owned cooperatives and there are uh, employee stock ownership plan companies which are ESOPs yeah and both of those both of those are are available in different situations um and uh, uh both both work quite well
0: so um I mentioned to you that I hung out in Mondragon for a while because I was working with DuPont and so we went up and negotiated some things and One of the reasons I ended up being in that project is when I first got out of a graduate school from Berkeley in economics, I built co-ops. I went around and consulted, worked on everything from food co-ops, and I discovered some ideas which were absolutely fascinating to me that made me not want us to copy Mondragon because it felt like it was at a particular period of time, we're serving certain needs, but it tended to do what I called undermine personal agency of the people who were in it because it was everybody could move and it lost some of the entrepreneurial spirit. I'm wondering, I I mean, I know that you guys have been looking at co-ops deeply. I mean, I quit being in that world 35 years ago, but I'm wondering how you think about combining the worker-owned cooperatives with the entrepreneurial spirit so that it doesn't just become a way to create security for people. Uh, And I know that you must have thought about that. It was a big deal. Yeah. I thought about it a lot. And it's
1: important, Carol, to keep in mind there are both ESOPs and worker co-ops, because they can be very different. A Worker co-op is one person, one vote, and um, uh, they do tend to be pretty egalitarian. Um, even in how they in how they function, and that's very powerful in certain sectors, and very uh, and can be very effective. There also are um, like we said ESOPs, and ESOPs um, in those cases, those are always second generation companies. You don't go out and start an ESOP. An ESOP is is something that you convert. You, you have an existing company and you convert it to an ESOP. That's the way they're, they're, they're set up. And so what you see in that kind of setup is you have an entrepreneur who starts a company, has that vision and drive, and uh, and creates a successful company. Uh, and I think, um, in my experience, it does take that kind of drive to create a real uh, successful company. And And then that person says, okay, how do I realize the value of what I built? Very few pass it on to their children. About one in seven today. And so, what do you do when you reach retirement age? How do you realize that value? Well, you can sell to employees. You can you can defer capital gains taxes. You, the company, if it's hundred percent employee owned, can, can um, and and an S corp, it pays no taxes at in, federal income taxes at the at the enterprise level. So there are lots of incentives. And yet, now you have an existing company has a proven business model. It can get buy, bank financing, and then. And to have employee ownership, that doesn't mean that everyone is equal. People tend to equate ownership with with management, you know, and they're different. I mean, you and I, we don't vote on which streets are paved in our cities, right? I mean, you need good management inside government. You need good management inside companies. But but you can have worker voice on something like, should we sell this company to a private equity firm? You know, workers probably ought to have a, a voice in that kind of decision. Um, and they should have a a claim on the profits they helped to create, so I think you can have both you can have both that that entrepreneurial visionary uh, leader drive and I think you can have broad-based prosperity both yep.
0: all right that that was very helpful. Um, so the third area I said I wanted to look at is you speak a great deal, even threaded I think through the books about climate, the climate crisis. Yeah. and I would love to know how you hold this book and the Democracy Collaborative's work in the context of what your work is about the c- climate crisis, but also what's with this new Green Deal? Yeah. Uh, have you paid <laughs> attention to it and can you tell yeah. how it fits with what you're looking at? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I think it's, um, it,
1: you know, Naomi Klein has a new book out. Where she One of the things she talks about, and she wrote the the uh, forward to our book, which we are just delighted that she yeah. did that, but she has made the case that climate changes everything. I mean, we can't, you know it's I think it's a mistake to think of it as just, oh, we're going to solve uh, ca- the carbon issue uh, and just focus on that. No, actually, it's going to change everything. Uh, and and also, the current structure of capitalism is what militates against us being able to solve climate. So let me give you one example um, that we have in the book that that comes from our work, the Democracy Collaborative. Um, we, we put, put forth uh, an idea called quantitative easing for the planet. I mean, what, what do you do about the fact that it's mostly oil companies like ExxonMobil who are out there actually creating disinformation, you know, holding uh, executives uh, and you know lobbying and keeping legislators from being able to enact change? What if the government stepped in and just bought out the 25 largest fossil fuel companies and said we're going to wind them down and you could do it using quantitative easing which is the same tool that the government used to bail out the big banks in 2008 and nine it's like you you create new money by the Federal Reserve so what if you know in in, in a crisis like the big banks are going down we can create 800 billion dollars out of thin air that's what the federal Reserve did through through quantitative easing through the um, uh, troubled relief asset uh, program. We could do the same thing for the planet. we've We realized it, it would cost about, about the same about seven or eight hundred billion dollars to buy out these twenty five largest companies and wind them down. And you know um, it's it's a thought experiment. I mean, it actually has been uh, supported by some large environmental funders and and it, and it could be feasible. but but even to take it as a thought experiment, what the first thing it tells us, is that the reason we're not dealing with climate is because we have these large mega corporations that have a particular ownership structure, which is investors, they wanna keep their, their stock price up, and they have a purpose, which to maximize profits in the short term. I mean, ExxonMobil is, putting, is saying, we're gonna increase our, our profits 25% in the coming years. I mean, they're acting like the climate crisis doesn't exist. That is, we cannot allow, allow companies like that to exist they are actually hindering us. So, Okay, so that's one example of how um, climate and and the structure of capitalism are related. Here's another, and that is um, green energy. Right now, our our electricity tends to be created by investor-owned utilities that are, um, uh, they're big centralized power plants creating fossil fuel energy. But solar and wind, those are more distributed. There's, those are distributed sources of wind, and they can have distributed ownership. You can have solar panels on the roof of your of your house. You can have farmers owning wind turbines uh, across the Midwest. So, you know, while we're moving to clean energy, we also have an opportunity to move to distributed ownership, as well as as well as a distributed kind of uh, creation of the energy, and that's that's a once a generation opportunity, right? I mean, with the Industrial Revolution, when a new kind of economy is coming into existence, that's when great wealth is created. That's where Rockefeller, um, you know, Carnegie, that money came from the Industrial Revolution and owning the new sources of energy and industry in a a new kind of era. So who's going to own the green infrastructure of this new economy? We're on the verge of building right now. Are we still going to have the 1%? own everything. So I think to think of a transition of ownership at the same time that we're thinking of a transition to a green, a green economy, it's critical that we think of that together. And, and here's the third point that I would make, Carol, and that is let's imagine that we don't do that. That we just we sort of don't get it together to think about ownership and who's controlling things and who owns everything, who's benefiting. Instead we just say, let's just deal with the physical parts of carbon. And so we kind of, and this is what Wall Street is thinking, well, it's still going to be capitalism, but we're just going to green it. We're just going to have wind turbines and, and, you know, uh, green electricity, but it's still going to be capitalism. Well, we know where that heads, Carol, that heads toward increasing concentration of wealth. Since since 2009, 95% of the gains of income have gone to the top 1%. So let's imagine that we consider we continue that for the next 20 or 30 years. What you're going to have is you're going to have a tiny oligarchy controlling everything. And 99% of people, maybe without jobs, without security, let's say they even get universal basic income. They're going to whittle that down on us every year. You're going to create a bifurcated society. The only way you can sustain such a society is through fascism. And so I I don't think we have a choice, actually. I I think if we think we can just deal with carbon, we're not
0: not being realistic. Yeah. So I have one last story I'd like for you to tell, because as I've been listening to you, I've been thinking it answers the question because the things you're talking about are huge and big. But when people ask the question, what can I do, right? How can I go into something? When I was reading about your trip and the story to Preston, England, I got such a strong sense of a local community, you know, a village, a city council, making decisions that actually are trying to, I think, accomplish the things you're talking about here, shift into different kind of ownership and different economic model. If you agree, I'd love for you to tell just a little bit of that story and give people hope that they actually could do something at home. That's great. I will tell that story. Let me just do a PS
1: to my last uh, answer. And that is about the Green New Deal. We are in talks with Green New Deal people. And yes, we're we're making the case that ownership and, you know, uh, broad-based prosperity and wealth needs to be part of it. Lots of people are making that case. So I think that that thinking is, is coming along. I'm happy to say that you know we don't want Halliburton building the Green New Deal, right? I right. think <laughs> that's not what all of us are hoping for. So that those conversations are advancing. Okay, so um, so um, Preston. This is a fascinating story. So Preston is this Rust Belt city in in England. It's very much like Cleveland, which is where uh, it's a Rust Belt city in Ohio, where we help to design and build the Evergreen Cooperatives, which is three uh, worker-owned companies commercial laundry, greenhouse, and, and uh solar company that are supported by large anchor institutions. And So both of those pieces are important. You, know, you have Cleveland Clinic and you have Case Western Reserve University writing big contracts to support these, these firms. Okay, so that's what we did in Cleveland. So people, uh, a guy on the city council in Preston, he's a half-time city council because that's how small the city is, looked around on the web, saw what we had done in, in the Evergreen co-ops and got inspired. He said, I want to do something like that here in Preston. They were trying to attract a big corporation and that, that fell apart uh, in the 2008 downturn. So they said, okay, we're on our own. What, what can we build using our local assets? And they went out and they took this idea of anchor institutions, uh, which are big um, nonprofit or, or government uh, entities that are locally anchored. They're not going to get up and leave like corporations have. And they said, let's get more purchasing going on locally. And they went out and they talked to schools and the police department and, um, you know, big anchor institutions and said, buy more from locally owned businesses. And they increased um, the equivalent of hundreds of millions of dollars of purchasing began to be done locally, uh, which, which was a change in a few years. They also got the county pension fund to invest locally like in, in like schools and rehabilitating a hotel and things like this so these are in you know these are investments that offer a return this wasn't philanthropy so they began to take a look at the sources of money that they could localize and keep circulating locally because when local businesses get contracts the money circulates three times more than if it's absentee owned so they did these things they made themselves a living wage city uh, they worked with the university to support the startup of more co-ops. They did a variety of things. They, they're starting a couple, of, like a, a non-predatory payday lender, um, and these other things. So, Preston was recently declared by Price Waterhouse Coopers the most improved city in the UK, and they, they, they declared it a, a better place to live than London. <laughs> It's remarkable, and this happened because this community got together and said, what can we do together to improve our community? We don't think some big corporation is gonna come save us, um, and, they, and, they, and there, it's working. And in fact, it has inspired people all across the United Kingdom, at least different 60 different cities have come to Matthew Brown, who was the city councilor who, uh, who led this work. Um, and we recently it was, we scrambled around at the Democracy Collaborative, we found some money to support half of my uh, Matthew's time so he can be on the road talking to people about this. So he's now a fellow with us. And it's inspired actually the, the uh, labor party there. They've created a community wealth building unit within uh, labor uh, to, to take these ideas to scale. So it's, it's an example, yeah, one beaten down community what, what you can do and make a real
0: difference. Well, and it's going through the Brexit crisis. I mean, it's like the timing couldn't be better to have this stuff in place.
1: Right. I think that's so, right.
0: So I want to say to you, your book is wonderful. You and Ted have done an amazing job. Particularly what I like about it is the systemic nature of it. The looking at so many different ways. I always say you can't be regenerative unless you start with the whole And you're with the whole of the idea of what does it take to have an economic structure work. Um, And so you're also very hopeful. And that gives me hope, too. And I'm sure everyone's listening. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. And good luck with the book and whatever comes next. Thanks, Carol. This has been a lot of fun talking. All right. Bye-bye.